Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. He's been here. He's been there. Magic down the middle, just what I thought. A hook shot at 12. Good! He's been everywhere. Shot from there and a save and a rebound. Score! Yes! Kings win the cup. Sobel. That's one small step for man. Ted Sobel. One giant leap for man. The man, the myth, the legend. What the hell's going on out here? Now, one-on-one with Ted Sobel. Hello, friends. Jim Nance here, and you're listening to Touching Greatness. Yes, this is a wonderful tradition, you could say unlike any other, with Ted Sobel right here. Well, thank you, Jim Nance, and we have your neighbor on with us this week with the start of NFL 100, the century mark for the National Football League. And I can't think of another perfect person to join me here on Touching Greatness than the man they call the Dean of NFL Referees, my friend and my high school principal at Fairfax High in Los Angeles from 1968 through 71. And a man who has seen it all and done it all and still a kid at heart at the age of 90. Dr. Jim Tunney, amazing career, 40 years in officiating football and basketball, 31 of those in the NFL as a referee working a record 29 postseason games, including three Super Bowls, 10 NFC AFC championship games, six Pro Bowls, 25 Monday night games, and he officiated some of the all-time memorable games in NFL history, including the Ice Bowl, the Kick, the Snowball Game, the Final Fumble, the Fog Bowl, and appropriately, the 100 Bears-Packers game as they begin the new season with a Thursday nighter in a matchup at storied Soldier Field in Chicago. When I was up at Pebble Beach recently on Father's Day to cover the U.S. Open, Jim invited me over to his nearby house, and what a pleasure to sit down and talk, not just about the old days, but also how he sees the National Football League today. And as you're listening, try to imagine the incredible scenery surrounding the Monterey Peninsula, one of the most beautiful spots on the planet. Welcome to Touching Greatness and a special edition of the 100th anniversary of the start of the National Football League. And I'm in my principal's office and not in trouble with Mr. Jim Tunney, who was my principal at Fairfax High School just a couple of years ago. Jim, it's always great to see you. Thank you. It was a couple of years ago to me. It seems like yesterday, no question about <laughs> it. But uh, I don't think you were ever in my office then either, Chad. I think no, that, I wasn't. Uh, you, you behaved yourself pretty well at Fairfax. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about a little bit of those days, too. Uh, in the 60s, it was a different world. And, boy, you had a responsibility of not just being a principal, but uh, almost like a moral leader in some respects, don't you think? Well, my, my job in 1960, when I started with the NFL, I was the vice principal at Lincoln High School in East L.A. in the Lincoln Heights area and uh, enjoyed it over there very much. I was there 13 years. But when I moved to Fairfax in 64, then all those years I would work Monday through Friday, I was in the school building. And Saturday morning, I'd go to LAX and get on an airplane and fly to Green Bay or Baltimore or Dallas or someplace to work games. In fact, 1960 was the first year Dallas was in the league, and Tom Landry was the coach. So I, don't think they, I don't think Tom Landry got in the playoffs for four or five years. In today's market, if you didn't win four or five years, you're fired. Yep. But Landry lasted 29 years and, and very, very, very successful. But my first year, I was... Uh, uh, my first game was in the L.A. Coliseum. It was a preseason game. Uh, Chicago Bears and Los Angeles Rams, and the Bears came out by train 
to Los wow. Angeles, and uh, I met uh, the head coach of the Chicago Bears, uh, the founder, the creator, the owner of the Chicago Bears, and the founder of the league, uh, George Hallis. And uh, I met him on the field, and my job as a, as a field judge in those days was to meet the head coach and find out who his captains were. I said, Mr. Hallis, my name is Jim Tunney, and I'm here to get your captain. Oh, Tunney, Tunney, yeah, you went to Occidental College. You played football, basketball, and baseball. He knew me better than, wow. than I thought. <laughs> I we know a little. It's my first year. I was 31 years of age. And he said, well, welcome to the National Football League. Anything I can do to help you, I, I, mean, I knew he was trying to get me on his side, but sure. <laughs> it, it, it never worked. But I worked, I worked many games for for the Bears when Hallis there, the after that game, that was on a Sunday. The next Sunday, they took the train up to San Francisco, and I worked the Bears and the 49ers. So I saw them back-to-back oh. -back like that. And uh, 49ers, I don't uh, even remember. Buck Shaw, I think, was the coach at that time. But uh, nobody, nobody, unless the old days, remember Buck Shaw. But everybody remembers George Hallis. Sure, right? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What do you think George Hallis would say if he was around today, seeing what this league is all about? Uh, he would not He would not watch it. He would, he really? Would, yeah, he's... he's uh, He's a great football guy from Decatur Staley's to the Chicago Bears, but the game today is not the game that he invented or he was part of. And uh, I think he'd be disgusted to see some of the celebrations that are going on. He would say that, act like you've been there before type of thing. And yeah. it, it, it's a game of team. You you can't get there. I mean, I've never saw Gale Sayers spike the ball in the end zone. I mean, Gale Sayers crossed the goal line and dropped the football. Uh, the Sid Luckman that he had there for many years it was never a, a showboat, but he was very famous for what he did. Sure. But but Hallis maintained the, the, the discipline and the decor that he wanted for the Bears. In fact, most teams did. Most teams said, "We don't do that for our team. We don't show off. We're not we're a travel person." But but today it's a lot of meism and individualism that I think George Hallis would be very upset about. How much of that though also comes into play that? Uh, the marketing end of it because there's so much money. People didn't have to do that then. It wasn't like you were going to get all these incredible endorsements early on the way they're getting it now. No, in fact, most of the players uh, stayed in the city and, and worked there. In Green Bay, exactly. stayed there, worked in the paper mills and things like that because they had to have a, they always had jobs. Sure. But now some of that, you're right, Ted, some of that showboat now is to show who I am and I could do this for your commercial. They don't think of that. Totally, but sure. it's in the back of their mind, and and, and that showboat stuff is what the what television marketing, what the young people want to see. How about separate from that though? Just the game itself. How do you see it? The evolution, in a way, is good because from a health standpoint, obviously you don't want the concussions and all the negativity. At the same time, you want hard hitting football. They might want to go back to leather helmets. Uh, I've heard that be, because, and in fact, I've said for years. If you take the face mask off, and most of them had no face masks in those days, you take the face mask off and see the broken noses that the guys had in those days, uh, but they don't stick their head in there without that face mask. They wouldn't be sticking their head in there like that. They'd be back, blocking and tackling with their shoulders, which is what they're supposed to be. Yep. Now they block and tackle with the head and put the head in there. The fact is we know with the, with the uh, targeting that it, it takes place today, yep. uh, you can't use your head. In fact, if you watch the runners today, when a runner goes to get hit, the first thing he does is drop his head. That's protection. A lot of head injuries now are a result of the runners hitting their head against the tackler. Not the tackler's fault. Yeah. He can tackle with his shoulder, but the runner's responsible. You never see a targeting foul against a runner. It's always against the tackler. 
We're saving the quarterbacks now. They can play into their 40s easily, right? Because they're not getting hit all the time anymore. No, they have a lot of protection they didn't have when Starr and Unitas and yep. Jurgensen and those guys played, and uh, and they would get hit and knocked down. But they tackle differently. I mean, I've seen guys pick up Montana and not tackle him down and pick him back up, you know, because yep. they had respect for him that way. And they know their job is they better knock him down because that's what the coach wants me to do. But once he gets knocked down, he'll want to back up again. So pick him back up and, and, and help him back to his feet. But the tackling was different. They tackled differently. And now they call it Terminator football. You run through the quarterback and you blast him. And and if he goes out of the game, well, good. Maybe you get a backup in there. Right. The backup's not the the front line guy, so he's not going to be nearly as good. But the the, the terminator football that just blasts through the quarterback is wrong. If they go back to just tackling with their arms and their shoulders, they'd be a lot better off. So, are you enjoying the game, watching it as much now? Is the evolution been a part of you as well? It's not a big deal. I watch it every Sunday, every time I can, uh, mostly because I'm watching officials and see whether they're in the right position. The game moves so fast now. When I started, we had five officials. Now we have seven. We're going to eight and uh, troubling all the people. Seven is good because now we have five downfield officials can five, cover five receivers. Before, we only had one or two downfield officials covering five receivers. But now they're throwing to all five of them. And so the five officials against five receivers – Covering the five receivers is a good plan. So what do you think about the rule changes in the last couple of years? And immediately come into my mind, and perfect for you to answer this, is the Rams-Saints playoff game last year with the missed call and how that affected who went to the Super Bowl. And I'm sure you have thoughts about that. Well, it was a mistake. There's no question about it. The Fisher should have caught it. It was, it was an obvious pass interference. It wasn't one of those ticky-tacky little things. The guy just came across and blasted him. Uh, and I wrote an article about it some years ago. It's called Unintentional Blindness. And what it is is that you and I are sitting close to each other, and I've got a stack of cards, and I'm doing a card trick. And you say, how do you do that? You were watching me from five feet away, and you didn't see me do that? But how do you do that? Magicians do it all the time. It happens to the mind. It's unintentional blindness. You're looking right at it, but you can't see it. It's just like a magician. Huh. And, and when things like that happen, yes, it's a mistake. But you see in the second quarter, Drew Brees throw an interception. That's also a mistake. You're not supposed to throw an interception. When you throw football, there are three things that are happening, and two of them are bad. Incomplete interception. There's only one of those three that's uh, it's good, and that's incompletion. Players make mistakes. They miss blocks. They miss tackles. They miss assignments. They throw interception. Uh, they do all kinds of things that are mistakes. Well, these are players. The game happens so fast it's going to happen that way. That's the same thing with officials. It's going to happen. Don't go too much to technology. I was there the first year NFL started with replay in 1986. And, and I, I liked it because we can get the play right. But now they've taken to the point where you can call from the sidelines and say, I want to take a look at that on, on replay. It's interesting that when the official calls it, the coach might not believe him. But at replay, they'll believe the technology. Well, technology is only you're looking at it three or four times. Sure. They have a game like that. It's called Madden 20. <laughs> you, can, you can buy those video games. <laughs> yes. This is not a video game. This is played with real people in real time and real mistakes. I think there's one simple answer to this, and I don't understand why it's not so obvious to everybody. Why can't you just have a guy wearing a striped shirt upstairs who has a monitor 
and he can look at it and they can go to him at any time. It's not anything special. He works for, he's part of the crew. Is that difficult or am I wrong or what? Would you do that for interceptions too? If it... No, 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 not everything. But you know, again, you can separate however you want to do it. Whatever you feel the league feels is correct, that we can take some time, an extra 20 seconds, but you don't have to look extra. How about if he saw it? And it was missed, for example, this Rams-Saints play, right? If he saw it, he presses a button. We need to talk for five seconds. He missed the call. Let's do it now. Where do you draw the line? I don't know. Well, that's the, that's the, I issue. Know. That's the issue. Is that how many, once you get to that point, then should you do it for other things? To how many of these should you do it's it for a, a fumble before he gets to the goal line? Did he cross? Did he break the plane at the goal line? Now all he has to do is stick the ball across the plane. You don't even have to be there. Right. And the, and I've always thought they'll never be able to change that. But why can't you have it where a player has to head his whole body across the goal line? Well, the ball's the governing thing. Yep. Could you go to that replay guy up there? Now they do that this year, Ted. They, they do have, and we've had it for years now, we have an IRO, instant replay official. Right. And we have the official up there. There are 17 of those interest replay officials hired by the league. Uh, nine of them have never worked a football game in the NFL. Well, that's a little strange. And, and you're, you're not going to get ex-officials to go up there and sit there for like that. They, you, you can't, you know, after you've been on the field a number of years, you, uh, it's like pass interference. We have people on the field five and six years who still don't understand what pass interference is. Does this replay official up there have a better knowledge? If he has that kind of knowledge, then you'll put him on the field. And it's not going to work that way. But it, it's I don't like the video replay that goes over and over and over. I don't either. And, Jim, I'm mostly thinking not necessarily replay official, but a guy up there who's part of the crew. He just happens to be upstairs watching it on TV. And if he saw that play and it was missed, he didn't even have to replay it. It's like just hit the button. That's a he throws his own flag from up there. That, that is that's in effect now. The injury official is part of the crew now, and okay. he has been for a number of years. There are seven officials. Okay. We have an injury official and a technician who travel with the crew. Same crew, same guys. Some of them are ex NFL. A few of them are ex NFL officials. But the point is, where do you draw the line on it? And it's not so much replay, but the competition committee. Do they decide which ones? Where do you draw the line on it? Which sure. one are you going to call and not call? And, and so um, I believe the game played by people, uh, people who make mistakes, quarterbacks, with interceptions, guys who miss blocks, miss tackles. Officials from time to time are going to miss a play. The official right now, the, the NFL office says that officials are getting about 96 to 97% correct every time. Uh, best quarterback rating I saw was something like 65. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so it's, it's different. <laughs> officials having a very high rate, and, and it doesn't make a difference whether they're part-time or full-time. If you watch the NBA, those are full-time officials. Yep. How many plays did they miss? Uh, in the hockey game the other night, sure. several weeks ago, a guy hit the puck with his glove. Uh, those are full-time officials. Full-time doesn't make you any better. Doing it every day doesn't make you any better. It's just it's going to happen. These are, things happen so quickly that mistakes are going to be made. Yeah, anything out of the mouth of the dean of officials, I'm listening a little stronger than the average guy, Jim. That's the truth. i got to ask you, what do you like most about the game today? 
I, I think it's because it's played with people. It's still 11 guys on each side of the ball. They still get four downs to make 10 yards or make a touchdown. It, it's The game is a bit different than when George Hallis was playing, <laughs> except all the technology that's come in. And don't tell George that, by the way. <laughs> but they're faster, they're bigger, they're stronger, and people are just better athletes. Oh, no question about it. The, the speed now and the size of these yep. players – at six foot seven and running the forty yard dash in four point four or four point five <laughs> at six foot seven and two hundred and thirty pounds. I mean that's incredible size now. Would you have been able to do it the same if even in your younger days or would you have to work out a little more to, because I mean you, you do have to be a little better shape than in the old days and I'm not saying you weren't but I worked out every day. I'm sure every, you did. Every day living living where I live, I run on the streets and, and keep in shape and and uh, we still have guys, if you watch a receiver catch that ball, uh, a Jerry Rice or whatever, he's running down the sidelines, and here's a, a 45, 50-year-old guy running around the sidelines. How does he do that? Well, he gets a little head start, but, but say, you got to stay in shape. The biggest thing about shape is physically is, as well as mentally. Mentally, it's, it's a tiring game at three sure. hours and so on, and you've got to be mentally ready for it because at the end of the game, I was more tired mentally than I was physically. Wow, you got to know your angles too, right? Exactly. Save space. When I watch the game, I'm watching for positioning. Is the official in the right place at the right time? Interesting. 100 years, though. It's unbelievable. What an incredible anniversary, huh? Amazing anniversary, yeah. I, I, and I worked, uh, in fact, speaking of 100, the, the Bears and the Packers are opening the season this year. I worked the 100th game that the Bears and the Packers played. Oh, that's great. In Wrigley Field at the time. Okay, so I think you refereed more Super Bowls than anybody, is that correct? Not so. I worked uh, uh, four Super Bowls, three as a referee. Okay. And one and Super Bowl 11 and 12 were back-to-back, and nobody knew if referees ever done that Got before. It. So that's a that's a, a singular. It's a very nice thing to be able to do that. I'm not sure it should happen. I like officials who work on the field, have an opportunity in the league to work at least a Super Bowl when they retire. So which one was your favorite? I just like to say, which one is your favorite kid? But uh, of the games you did, the Fog Bowl, the Ice Bowl, the lot of bowls. <laughs> Probably uh, the, the favorite was the uh, Super Bowl Eleven, played at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, Oakland Raiders, Minnesota Vikings. I grew up in San Gabriel, just four or five miles from the Rose Bowl. I went to Rose Bowl as a little kid. My dad was an official, worked for Pasadena Junior College, a kid playing for Pasadena Junior College, then with Jackie Robinson. I sat on the bench alongside of Jackie Robinson. Right. I, uh, my dad refereed the Rose Bowl game between UCLA and Illinois in 1947. 30 years later, January 1977, I worked Oakland, Minnesota, in the same place as my dad had worked. That's kind of special for me. Oh, absolutely. And your father, we talked about it on the phone before, being involved in the horse racing business for so many years. Uh, I wonder what he would be thinking about what's going on at Santa Anita these days. I'm sure you've seen, you know, with the deaths of the horses and all that. It's just, it's a killer to just think about it. Yeah, and he wouldn't have any control over it necessarily. but. But he'd be very disappointed with the, the things that are happening. We all are. As a, Dad was in horse racing for 20 years. My brother was in it for 35 years. And uh, and they're very disappointed in seeing what's happening in San Anita or other places. And it's too bad it's happening at all. But uh, yeah. maybe it's technology that comes with the, the uh, doping of horses and things like that, the medications that they're using one way or the other, good, bad, right, or wrong. Uh, and maybe that's part of it. I don't know the answer to the, what's happening to sure. the number of deaths in San Diego, but uh, they'll come up with something incorrect. 
Your father was uh, head of stewards, is that correct? He was head steward at Sandita Hollywood in Del Mar, yeah. Oh, that's great. What a time, too. That that was like the ultimate time of horse racing, right? Yeah, he was an official, so he started a, a working horses and thoroughbred racing in 1945. And so that was the beginning. And the reason they hired him is he's, they said, you, you know what a foul looks like. And so we look for fouls because there were a lot of fouls, a lot of pushing and shoving and everything happening in horse rigging at the time. They wanted to correct that, and so that was that's why Dad was hired. For okay, so you ended up a principal at my high school, but how do you end up becoming an official? Is it the kind of thing, did your father open any doors for you, or was it something, I just want to do what my dad does? Or I, I wanted to do it because they paid extra money. I, I like that. I, <laughs> I worked, I worked uh, Thursday night game or Friday night game. Uh, before I worked in the NFL, I started working high school games, started working intramural games, things sure. like that, and paying, uh, in fact, high school was paying $12.50 at the time, and I could work two or three games, I'd make $37.50 on the weekend, I thought, man, that's like finding money in the streets, I like what I was doing, I loved it. I never thought I'd be at the NFL, the NFL was not very big sure. in the 50s out here, so when I was doing the 50s and the high school and colleges, I just worked and then you moved in. And you, you want to move up. All officials want to move up to the next level, so to junior college and the small college and the major college. And then I never even applied to the NFL. They came along in 1960 because they were expanding. Dallas was coming in that year. Yeah. Minnesota was scheduled in 61. They hired nine of us from uh, that, that 1960, and I was one of those nine that hired it. I signed the contract at 30 years of age, and 31, I worked on the field. I was very fortunate, very fortunate. Perfect. We're sitting here on Father's Day talking about yeah. your father. I love that. My father. My <laughs> I father, know. He's very special. He was my, my mentor, my idol, my hero. Uh, uh, everybody says they love their father. I, they you read on Facebook, I had the best <laughs> best father. No, you didn't. <laughs> I had the best father. I had the best father and the best mother. They were they were. I'm glad I selected my parents the way I did. <laughs> they were good people. Yeah. Did he get a chance to see you in the NFL at all? He, I don't think he ever saw me work a game. He, oh. he died in '65, uh, five years after. Um, he, he didn't even high school in games. He didn't come to my game. We'd talk about it, things like that. What would happen? And he could advise me. But uh, I think he might have come to a, a LA Coliseum game because we lived in Southern California at the time. But but that was about all. Yeah. Because, you know, the stories about your father, you could write a whole separate book just on that alone, I'm sure. Absolutely, I did. In fact, uh, you did write about your father? First book I wrote called Impartial Judgment, I dedicated to my father, oh, okay. who taught me to believe in myself. That is that, so That's fantastic. what he taught me, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you had a couple of stories before we get away here about what we did at Fairfax High in, in the early days. And uh, you also wanted to talk about the fact that uh, you brought in or your help in within the uh, on the campus brought in some of the great names to be able to perform at Fairfax High. I mean, it almost sounded like we were a studio and not a high school. Well, I, I enjoyed uh, Fairfax High School very much. Seven years I was there, and uh, when I started there, they were having a celebrity assembly. If you bought a ticket to the celebrity assembly, you got to see all the football and basketball games for free. We weren't selling very many tickets in those days, so the first one I got there in 1965, uh, my first action was 1966 when we I got to hold a guy named Herb Alpert and uh, I T heard of him. Tijuana Brass, and we had them come to the campus, and they were followed by Sergio Mendes in Brazil '66, and followed by Alan Sherman, "Hello Mother, Hello Father," <laughs> and followed by Bill Cosby, "The Fifth Dimension." 
Uh, we had a, just one right after the other. They and were, you didn't mention the birds from before that. They, they hired the, when I got there, the birds were already on the on the on the docket for hiring. I <laughs> I didn't think much of the birds myself, but that was my personal opinion. <laughs> we got we got some good artists in there, and, and uh, as a result of the people I got to know, um, Herb and and uh, worked for him for a couple of years as the educational director of his foundation. And then uh, Bill Cosby and I became very good friends. Sorry to happening with, with Bill now, but yeah. he was a wonderful man for us and wonderful for our kids. Kids admired him, and, and they, they, they loved what he did. What has this entire journey for you meant? Thinking not just the officiating, but all the people you've met. I mean, you've just been around some wonderful people. I've been very fortunate uh, to meet so many people. Just the fact that I... I worked for Herb Alpert, and so one day I was speaking in Vegas, and, and Frank Sinatra was uh, working at the Caesars Palace, and I called Herb, and I got a ticket that I didn't have to pay for that was in the third seat from the stage, and uh, I met Frank Sinatra after that, and, and um, uh, so many people that have been, uh, Jim Neighbors was singing for the Los Angeles Rams, the national anthem, I met, met Jim, and as I say, Bill Cosby and and uh, as a me- working for her, her backrack has become a good friend. So all over the years, it's been a, a very blessed life. In fact, my father said to me when I was a kid, "Count your blessings." I, I count my blessings today, every day. Fantastic. Well, happy Father's Day, Jim. Nice to have you here. Nice to have a former student who was never in trouble in my office. Absolutely. And and I want to thank you on the podcast for getting me. You don't remember getting me personally, but uh, being involved in that first sports challenge with Dick Enberg, because I got one of those six tickets. I was one of the kids that we need a sports oriented student. That was me. I raised my hand so high up and I got a chance to be there for that first show and did the practice show before that. And that was fun. That was great. Dick was a good friend. Dick, uh, uh, we've lost him, of course, but yeah. he was the announcer for the UCLA Bruins, yep. uh, teaching baseball at Northridge. But then he'd come and do the Bruins game. I was on the floor and, at Pauley opened Pauley worked the first game at Pauley oh, really? Yeah. And Dick was there. So then he went in the NFL, and he worked a lot of games with more Olson than I was in. So Dick and I became good friends. That's yeah. fantastic. We're good friends. And All the best to you, Jim. Important. You look great. You're only you're a young ninety. Feel good. I feel good at ninety, and uh, I'm getting better every day. What I do. That's so, great. Great you. to see you at Pebble Beach too. Thank you for being here too. All right, thank you, sir. Our thanks again to the Dean of NFL Refs, Jim Tunney, for joining us here on Touching Greatness, the podcast. Hope you enjoyed our little get together up at Pebble Beach. So until next time, I am still Ted Sobel, and as I begin my 14th season on Sports USA's radio network broadcast of the National Football League, doubleheaders every single Sunday all over the nation, let's kick this season off already. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.